0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome everybody here. We're so, so glad that you're here with us in the room if you're here. And we're really glad that you're tuning in online if that's you. But I hope you all feel welcomed in the name of Jesus Christ who welcomes us into His healing presence this morning. And if you are a visitor, or if this is just one of your first few times to be here, or if you've been coming for a while, but you don't really know many people, I hope you'll stick around, give us a chance to find you, connect with you. If you see an unfamiliar face, walk across the room, find them, connect. We're grateful that you're here this morning, and we want to welcome each other as Christ welcomes us. Because this is a church being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And over the last couple of years, Ben and I have started a tradition of on the first Sunday of the year in January, we will preach together and we celebrate as a church Identity Sunday. So that's the Sunday where we celebrate who God has made us to be, what God is doing in us, and where God is taking us. And this past Identity Sunday, at the beginning of this year, we talked about our theme for the year, Gather Unity in Christ, and we focused on engaging in unity. Gathering is an engagement with unity. And we challenged all of us that if you are engaged in some way in this church, take one step deeper one step further of engagement. If you come on Sundays for t- at 10.30, maybe you should also come at Bible class, 9.30. If you come on Sundays, but you're not in a connections group, get in a connections group. If you can serve, if you can give, if you can go on a short-term mission trip, the year's not over, right? We're winding down, but there's still time for us as a church to take a step, one step deeper, to engage further in the unity of of the body of Christ here at the spring. So I hope you'll be encouraged to do that. And we are gonna continue this morning in our sermon series, Blessed Are the Peacemakers. This is week four. Next week, Ben is gonna finish us up talking about God and peace. But this morning, we're gonna focus on self and peace in 2 Corinthians 7, verses two through 10, if you wanna turn over. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I have already said that you are in our hearts to die together, to live together. I am being completely frank with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with consolation. I am overjoyed in all our affliction. For even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted in every way, disputes without, and fears within. But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For although I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you grief, though only briefly, now I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. And brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks once again this morning for your word. And we thank you for your living word, Jesus Christ. Our counselor, our comforter, our keeper, our prince of peace. Lord, teach us peace through Jesus. Your grace to us. God, I ask you for the gift of preaching. In Christ's holy name that we pray, amen. We began this series talking about grace and peace. Grace and peace are a pair because God's grace comes to us only, God's grace and peace come to us as a gift. And we started with this quote from George Hunsinger, who says that peace comes as a gift before it unfolds as a task. But then over the last couple weeks, we've seen that the task of peace does unfold. We have the task of peace within the world. We have the task of peace regarding the church. And now this morning we see that we have the task of peace regarding ourselves. What is that task of peace when, to quote a celebrated American poet, It's me. Hi. (laughs) I'm the problem. It's me. There's a similar quotation actually that comes to us from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, He was a Christian writer and thinker and philosopher. And a London daily newspaper called The Times sent out a letter to several famous authors asking them one question What is wrong with the world? As the story goes, Chesterton replied with two words, I am. What is the task of peace when we have been peace's problem? What is the task of peace when we are the ones who have sinned and broken peace? Well, the church has thought about this for a long time, And the best wisdom of the church has said that there are three steps to making peace when we are the ones who have broken it through sin. And those three steps are contrition, confession, and satisfaction. So that's what I want to walk through this morning, through Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, contrition, confession, and satisfaction, and see what it means for us as individuals to make peace in the body of Christ and in the world when we have been the problem. So let's start with contrition in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 7. Paul says, For although I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you grief, though only briefly. The Corinthians are an interesting congregation because we get a lot of insight into what's going on in their church, right? We have not one, but two letters from Paul. So we get to see some of the effects from the first letter and see what's happening in the second letter. All right, so Paul says that he has grieved them with his first letter. We know that from 2 Corinthians. Paul has grieved them by pointing out some of the sins in the body of Christ at the church at Corinth. And Paul's a little ambivalent. He says, I kind of did regret it that I grieved you, but ultimately I don't. And I think the reason for that is this. Grief is not always a totally bad thing. Right? It's, It's not fun in it, absolutely. It's not fun to feel bad. It feels bad. But grief, Paul says, if it's godly grief, can lead us to the good. Paul says, I grieved you, but I don't regret it because he's allowed them to come back around from the sin that they were in. This is contrition. Contrition is feeling sorry for our sins. It's no fun right? Grief is not a fun thing, but Paul says it can be good if it leads to repentance, right? And so in, in the Psalms, in Psalm 51, we get this beautiful psalm of contrition, of sorrow over sins from David, right? And our scripture tells us that this psalm was birthed out of the prophet Nathan coming to David and and pointing out his sins regarding Bathsheba and her husband, right? And so David writes in Psalm 51, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God's not really all that interested in the sacrifices of the temple. There's a critique of that throughout the Old Testament. What he really wants is the sacrifice of a broken heart over the peace that we've broken. God wants that sacrifice, and it is a sacrifice because it's not fun to feel contrition. It's not fun to feel sorrow, but that's the first step of making peace. But contrition is a very specific kind of sorrow. right? The theologian Paul Griffiths, he talks about contrition, and he contrasts that with remorse, and he draws a distinction there. He says remorse is an inward focused sorrow, right? We've sinned, we've broken the peace, and we feel badly about that. We feel bad about our own sins, and we're turned in in that remorse. But he also says contrition is different. Contrition is when our grief starts to turn outward. When we stop feeling sorry just for ourselves, but we start to feel sorry for the damage that we've done. He says, In remorse, I want my pain to go away. In contrition, I begin to want the world's damage to be redressed. You can kind of see the direction of the Corinthians and their grief, their contrition, right? Paul says, That God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Right, Their feelings are directed towards Paul. They've started to turn that sorrow outward at the damage that needs to be repaired. It's not a fun feeling to be aggrieved by our sins. But it can be a kindness because as Paul says in Romans, do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Contrition. That's the first step to making peace when we have been the problem with peace. But it doesn't stop there. The second step is confession. And in verse 9 of our text, 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. After contrition, we move to confession. We move to telling the truth about our sins. Right? We state our sorrow by naming our sins. We tell the truth about what we've done, and that's the next step on the road to healing. That's the next step on the road to being a peacemaker when we are the ones who've broken the peace. 1 right? John says... If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? If we don't confess, there's deception, right? We're we're being deceitful, but we tell the truth to combat that deceit, right? Adam and Eve... Not only do they sin, but they want to kind of cover it up, right? They deceive themselves, but not only that, we deceive one another when we don't tell the truth about our sins. And that begins to break down our community. It begins to break down the connections that we have with one another. And Scott Hahn writes this. He says, when we begin to deny our sins, we begin to live a lie we have broken important connections of cause and effect because we've denied our own responsibility for our own most grievous faults. Once we've done this, even in a small matter, we have begun to erode the contours of reality. Parents, we know this truth acutely. And if you walk into a room where your kids were playing and there's an object broken on the floor, but nobody owns up to it, everyone denies... The connection between cause and effect has been broken. Right? The effect of the broken object is sitting there, but no one's being honest about the cause. Right? And this gets worse when it gets more sophisticated with adults. Right, We start to break down the, the ties between cause and effect. We start to erode the contours of reality, and suddenly nobody knows what's up, what's down, who's right, who's wrong. We make it muddy. And it affects our environment, it affects our community, it affects ourselves. There's another example I think of from the first episode of a TV show, maybe some of you have seen called The Good Place. Came out a little while back, but it tells the story of a woman named Eleanor who dies and goes to the afterlife and instead of going to the bad place where she expects to go, she goes to the good place. Heaven, this show's version of heaven. And she gets there, and she's gotten in by a fluke. She shouldn't be there. Everybody else is perfect, but she's the one who sticks out, right? But she doesn't tell anyone about this. She's deceitful about it. She doesn't tell the truth, and so she starts to wreak havoc in the good place. She's at a party, and she insults a tall woman by calling her a giraffe, and she starts hogging all of the food, including the shrimp cocktail. Well, the next morning she wakes up and there's a storm that is wreaking havoc across the good place. There are giraffes roaming through the streets. There are shrimp flying across the sky. It's chaos because she's refused to be honest about who she is. She's refused to tell the truth about her sins. But instead of this, we're called to tell the truth. We're called to confess because confession is the next step towards healing, towards repair. As James says in chapter 5, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. What's amazing about the power of confession is that it is truth about past harm with power for future healing. Confession is truth about past harm with power for future healing because when we confess, we change our relationship to our past sins, right? Gregory Jones says we are enabled to confess in order to re-narrate our lives as forgiven and forgiving people in community. Re-narrate. Right, when we confess, we are changing the narrative. We're changing the story of who we are in relation to our past wrongs and our future healing. We're not changing the narrative the way a powerful public figure might do that by twisting it, right, with lies and deceit, exercising a twisted power over the past. Rather, we re-narrate through the weakness and vulnerability of honesty. We re-narrate and we change. We don't really get to act upon the past, but in a sense we change the past because we've changed our relationship to it and we've opened up a new future. We've opened up a future of healing by telling the truth and removing an obstacle to peace. Contrition. Confession. It doesn't end there. The third step is satisfaction or making amends, right? As Paul writes in verse 10 of our text, he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. Paul sets up this dichotomy of two different kinds of grief. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. Godly grief leads to salvation and life and peace. Worldly grief leads to sin and death and destruction. And I love N.T. Wright in his commentary on this text. He draws the parallel of these two kinds of grief with Peter and Judas. Peter and Judas both sin and break peace with Jesus. They sin against him. They're his disciples and they betray him greatly. And they're both greatly grieved by what they've done. But Judas is worldly grief. Judas, he throws the money down that he had betrayed Jesus for and he goes off and sadly ends in, in that escape response of taking his own life. But Peter is godly grief. Peter is just as sad, sorrowful about what he's done to Jesus as Judas is. But Peter is able to take steps towards healing because Jesus gives Peter a concrete calling. Jesus doesn't just leave Peter out to dry. They make amends and then Jesus gives Peter a concrete task of serving his church. In other words, contrition and confession become concrete in satisfaction. Become concrete in reconciliation as Peter gets to make amends. Right? When we have wronged someone, we are, it's incumbent upon us to try to set things right. This goes all the way back to the beginning of God's people in Numbers chapter 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelites when a man or a woman wrongs another, breaking faith with the Lord that person incurs guilt and shall confess the sin that has been committed. The person shall make full restitution for the wrong, adding one-fifth to it and giving it to the one who was wronged. Contrition and confession are not the end of peacemaking. They're be- the beginning, right? It needs to become concrete in trying to restore. Restitution. Restitution. I think there's a great example of this in our modern movement of Alcoholics Anonymous. AA, if you've ever read through the 12 steps of recovery and their program, first of all, I think you'll be surprised at just how saturated it is with God, if you've never read it before. But secondly, they make things concrete. You get to steps 8 and 9, and it says, Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Making amends. Satisfaction. There's another word that the church has used for this. And that word is penance. But I hesitate to use penance this morning because I think it has a a connotation in our heads, kind of like the dictionary definition you get for penance, voluntary self-punishment inflicted as an outward expression of repentance for having done wrong. Jesus critiques outward self-punishment. Jesus critiques outward displays, right? The washing the outside of the cup while leaving the inside dirty. He calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. There's death inside. But penance in reality is what Isaiah talks about in chapter 58. It's actual repentance and repair. Isaiah says, is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Jesus doesn't want a big show of sorrow, of self-flagellation for its own sake. Jesus wants concrete repair and mercy. He wants concrete justice and love. He wants us to set things right. You know, I mentioned public, kind of twisting the narrative in order to re narrate for themselves. And when I hear of public figures in some sinful scandal, For the last few years, I haven't been able to see one of those stories that seems to break out every few weeks or so, be it a politician, a professional athlete, or a pastor. And when I hear those stories, I think of the name John Profumo. Alan Jacobs wrote about John Profumo about five years or so ago. I had never heard of him before. But Profumo was a 20th century British politician. And Profumo rose so high in his career that he got all the way to being Britain's war secretary. He was the secretary of war. But Profumo got caught up in an affair, a scandal, and he resigned from his position. But that's not the interesting part about Profumo's story. The interesting part is Profumo's pathway back to political power, namely, none. He didn't have one. He never re-entered politics. He had all kinds of well-connected and powerful friends who could have eased him into a big business or political job. He didn't do that. Instead, he started serving with a charity called Toynbee Hall. Toynbee Hall addresses poverty on the east end of London where there's a lot of Poverty and, and Toynbee Hall is a great charity that does work there. And Perfumo began volunteering, just doing menial tasks at the beginning. But over the course of years and decades, he eventually started raising money for them. And he became the chief fundraiser for Toynbee Hall. For 40 years, John Perfumo raised money for the poor in East London completely as a volunteer. And Alan Jacobs, writing kind of at the height of the Me Too movement, writes this. He says, Will a perfumo arise from our current situation? Will even one single solitary Christian leader who has been caught doing or enabling or covering for nasty things decide that the proper response is to perform extensive penance? And by performing extensive penance, I don't mean just taking a few months off to plan a comeback tour. I mean rather embracing humble service as medicine for the soul. God does not expect us to beat ourselves up and feel awful about our sin forever. Jesus died on the cross, so we don't have to do that. But God does expect us to take part in, in his making of peace. God does expect us to take part in righting the wrongs and making peace when we have been peace's problem. God does expect us to do acts of mercy and charity and justice, to share our bread with the hungry, to invite the homeless poor into our houses, to reach out to the people that we have specifically wronged, and seek to make amends. We have all added to the sin and strife and turmoil of the world, and it is our duty to add to the peace of the world. Now, we couldn't be saying this if we hadn't started this series talking about grace and peace. God's peace comes solely by grace. It is a gift. This is, works righteousness. This is not salvation by works. Salvation is God's job. Salvation is what God does. Peace is God's gift to us. Peace is God's song, and we are in the choir. Just because it's what God is doing, doesn't mean we get to sit on the sidelines. We have a part to play. We have a part to sing. When we do sing according to God's peace, we add to the beauty and the reconciliation. When we don't, we detract from it. When we sing off key in sin and strife, we cause chaos. God is the music. God is making peace. God is is the songwriter and the conductor. He is everything. It is his peace. But we have a part to play. We have a line to sing. And God is calling us to the concrete work of repairing peace in the world. We can't do it. We can't repair every place that we have been the problem with peace. We can't make up for all that we've done. There's no way we could possibly do it. And that's why God has given us Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the one sufficient peace offering for us. Jesus Christ, who is the one sufficient peace offering on offer to the world. Hebrews says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus is our one perfect peace offering. And it's because of his peace offering that we can live in the confidence of grace, that we can live able to confess, able to re-narrate our relationship to the past by living into his peaceful future. Because Jesus is sufficient, because he's once for all, the single sacrifice, when it comes to our past, we can confess it. When it comes to our present, we can address it. And when it comes to the future of God's peace, we can rest in it. Jesus is our one sufficient sacrifice of peace. Peace is the song of God, and he is calling us to sing along, to sing in harmony, in tune with one another as we go out and make peace by telling truth and repairing according to the kingdom of God. Let us stand and embrace the Jesus who is our offering of peace.